Okay, welcome uh, Wednesday Night Bible Study, Acts of the Apostles, part 22. We'll be in chapter 27 and maybe into chapter 28 a little bit. We'll see how time goes with that. Now let's just begin in prayer. Lord God, again, we thank you for the opportunity to go into your word. Lord, we ask that uh, by your spirit you guide us into our discussion tonight of Paul's journey to Rome and, uh, again, what it means to us individually and corporately, Lord, and, and uh, as you saw fit to uh, give us this account. So it's our desire to know uh, and glean understanding and application out of this. So we thank you for those that are here present, those that couldn't make it, and those that are hearing by podcast, Lord. We just thank you that you minister to all of us. And we just give you thanks and praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So uh, put a lot of step on it. Right? <laughs> Why do you move those? Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Okay, Acts chapter uh, 27. Remember, uh, Paul's been in house arrest for a while. He's been uh, uh, waiting to go to Rome, and now he's on his way to go to Rome, where he wanted to go. He wants to go minister to Rome. And remember, he wrote Romans with the anticipation that he was actually going to be going to Rome. And so so now he's on this journey. So let's see what happens on this journey. So Acts chapter 27, verse 1 to 8. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in an Arama, what is that? Aramitan ship, I'll say more about that in a second, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. We put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, uh, became the winds because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Sicilia uh, and Pamphylia, we landed at Mara in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Sindus, uh, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Sol- and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which there was a city of uh, La Sea. This is just the early part of Paul's journey. He's on a ship with some others. He's under the care of uh, a centurion. He's not under he's under arrest, but he's not bound. He's not you know, uh, and he has friends there with him. And it says that uh, he was allowed to go with his friends so they could take care of him. We don't know if he was sick 
or if that just meant that he could hang with them, or what. We don't know what, what the deal is. We're not really told why, but other than the fact that, you know, he could be with his friends. And so the centurion uh, didn't think that, that that was a problem at all. And uh, let's see. And it says in there, we, the pronoun we, uh, it says, you know, we got on the ship. And so who is the we? Because we know it's talking about Paul. But, you know, who who is the we? Because it's going to say it again later. And then we boarded this ship and, and we. The we is Luke. Luke is the one who's writing this. So among the people that were with Paul is Luke. Let me chase a rabbit right there. Real fast, because in a couple of weeks I might I'm going to do a couple of topics in December. One of them I was thinking of doing: uh, How was the Bible put together, and why these particular books in the New Testament? Why these books in the Old Testament? I don't know. I'm still going over it, but the New Testament were all written in the first century by people who witnessed what they were writing about. So, in other words. They, they weren't written years later after everybody died and somebody wrote something. Everything is a first-person account. So when Luke is saying we, yeah, it's we. He was there. He was on the ship. Uh, he, go, he goes through all this. So, you know, when you, when you, write, when you read Luke's gospel, you know, he, he traveled with them. Same thing with Mark. Mark traveled with them. Matthew tra- traveled with them. John traveled with them. Peter traveled with them. James, it was his half-brother. Okay, so everybody in Paul, you know, he's the only one who was present during that time, but his account has to do with the structure of the church, not Jesus' ministry before that. So Paul is a first-person account of, you know, Acts, all the things that happened in Acts. So it's referring to Luke there. Luke is one of these people here. So, verse 9. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, even with the fast, even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because of the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Okay, so, couple things there. Verse 9. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous. The voyage is dangerous because they're going against the wind. They're not sailing with the wind. They're going into the wind. So that makes it very treacherous. In uh, Anybody here know anything about sailing? That when you sail and you're going into the wind you have to set your sails at a particular angle and you don't go straight, you go crisscross. 
like this to go forward. And uh, uh, thanks to the History Channel for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, so it's, it's, it's treacherous. It's, it's not only slow, but it's, it's, it's treacherous, treacherous. And you have, the, you have the winds, the cold winds, the water is cold. And so what they're looking for is they're saying, uh, maybe we should find a place and just sit it out for the winter. Because it's it's going to get even though it's the Mediterranean, it's still going to get cold. It's still going to get uh, uh, very bumpy. And then it says another thing there in verse nine. It says, "It says when the considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over." What fast? It was the Day of Atonement. Yeah, you read your notes. It's the Day of Atonement, but that also helps tell us. What time of year it was? Day of Atonement is uh, was basically uh, uh, November, December. It, it it varies, but it's right late November, early December, around in there. Uh, and so, you know, already they're it's fall, but they're heading into the into the winter season. So I think they were probably hoping they could make a mad dash across and get there. But Paul issues a warning, and then he says, it, you know, not only are, are there prisoners on the ship, but there's also a cargo on the ship. And so he's saying there's a danger here that we're going to get shipwrecked, the bad things are going to happen, you're going to lose the cargo as well. So it's, it's not just a, a slave ship, per se, or anything like that. It's a cargo ship, and they happen to be uh, shipping some people to Rome there. Uh so again, they're going to be sailing against the wind. And the captain, the centurion, uh, listens to the captain and the pilot. And they say, we can make it. And so he doesn't heed Paul's warning. Uh, so that's kind of where that's at. Verse 13. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, in other words, south wind... Now, a wind came up that was going to push them. Okay, and Rather than coming from the north, it was going to push them. It said they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete closely in shore. So they're following the coast up because they got a favorable wind behind them. They think, hey, this is good. It's going to work. Verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquilo which uh, we know as a northeaster. You know, a northeaster um, is something that they get um, up in the upper part of the United States, and it's a blast of almost like hurricane-force wind coming out of Canada, coming out of the Arctic. And so now here they had a favorable wind, and then all of a sudden they get this blast, this northeaster, that is just going to toss them back and forth. It's just hurricane force winds. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, what is it, The Dangerous Catch or something, about where they go after cr crab, you know, and the, the boat's just going boom, boom. Well, okay, well, those are modern vessels, you know, made out of iron and all this. So we're, we're talking about wood ships here. Bang, you know, so what's wood going to do? Eventually... It's going to come apart, you know. So uh, this isn't good. 
So verse 15, and when the ship was caught in it uh, and could not face the wind, we gave way and let it ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clada, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirdling the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of the citrus. They let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison cargo. In other words, they were trying to make the ship lighter because they were, the ship was heavy. Water, obviously, was pouring in. They were worried about the boat capsizing. Uh, so Paul's warning uh, that they didn't heed is coming to fruition here. It says, On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small storm was assailing us. And then all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, th this is Luke telling his story. And notice it's, it's, it's a little bit different here. It's, it's a little more detailed. It's more, you know, we threw the tackle over with our own hands, you know, in the winds here, and we found safe haven here, we thought, and we're being tossed by the winds. And so he's giving his, you know, his firsthand account. And obviously, you know, he says there at the end, uh, and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So in other words, everybody was just fearful we're not going to make it. It's just not going to happen. That's how bad this uh, this storm was. So again, being battered by uh, this northeaster, hurricane-like wind uh, uh, just tossing them up and down. We don't know how deep the waves were. But, you know, those waves can get anywhere from, from 25, 30, sometimes 40 feet. Uh, and you, you're just in this boat going up and down, up and down. So verse 21. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. From there sail shall be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Verse 25, Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. So he's saying here, he gets heavenly guidance, which is not the first time the Lord speaks to him. You know, he was in jail in different times. So Paul knows the voice of the Lord. He, he knows you know, that voice. And so now we can we can surmise that either the waves were so bad and they were so fearful that they couldn't even eat, you know, for a while, for, for a couple of weeks or whatever it was, they, they, they couldn't eat. 
But Paul now says, you know, eat. You're going to need your strength. Uh, we're all going to survive, but we're going to lose the boat. And he says, I'm assured of this. Uh, the God whom I serve uh, has told me this. And so Paul starts, he starts it off with, see, I told you guys. He says, but the good news is, he didn't say this, but the good news is I'm on the ship. And I have to go to Rome. So that's the good news. You know, the bad news is you didn't listen, and now we're in this predicament of bouncing up and down and going through all that. So any thoughts, questions, any of that? It's just kind of a narrative, right? So, so much here. Uh, verse 27. But when the 14th night, another 14 days, had come, and we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. In other words, some of the sailors were, were jumping off the boat, but they were, they were putting the smaller landing boats there, and they were trying to say that they were, they were putting the anchors down, but really what they were doing, they were abandoning ship. And they, were, they were running from them. Verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, and remember, centurion, he's got a hundred soldiers with him. That's why he's a centurion. Okay. Uh, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them, to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. So for two weeks, they weren't eating. They were being bounced around there. And Paul's telling them, Get some nourishment here, guys. You know, you're going to need it. Verse 34, For therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from your head, or any of you shall perish. So he says, no one's going to die. And having said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. So there's 276 people on board this ship uh, plus plus a cargo. This particular ship was probably a grain carrying uh, cargo ship and so they had grain on there and then 276 and we might think well that's, that was probably a pretty big ship. They had ships back in that day that could hold up to uh, 600 people. So this was probably a third of the, or the size of their, their bigger ships but again 276 people plus cargo and, and all that stuff. It's, you know, a good-sized ship, right? So we find out how many people are on board. Uh, 
And so, you know, encouraged by God, Paul encourages them to eat and says, you know, uh, uh, none of you are going to perish. Don't worry. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they all thought it, they were done. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea, again, the grain cargo. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, and they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas meet, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So bottom line, they're shipwrecked. Right? They finally find a place. So they they decided there's land. There looks like a, a natural little bay there. Let's let's head for that. And as they're going in, uh, the front of the ship gets stuck, and they they can't dislodge it. And the back of it starts breaking up. And it's you know this boat has been pounded for two weeks by this this storm. So you you know they're probably just hanging by a thread. Anyway, so they're on this reef, close enough to uh, close enough to land. Verse forty two. Now here's where it gets a little dicey. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, but none of them that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow some on the planks, others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. And when they had been brought safely through, then they found out that the island was called Malta. That's where they are at. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I had So, we started off, his journey started off over here, through Cyprus and all this, and he goes through here, and this is where they were in Crete, right here, and here's Fair Havens. Sounds like a housing tract, right? Fair Havens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 1953 for $20,000. So anyway, so this is where they leave, and this is, this is the sea where for, for two weeks they're bouncing around in here, uh, and they end up over here in Malta. Where they, where they really wanted to go was straight up here. So they end up over here. Uh, so you can kind of see what's going on there. So even though it's relatively close, you know, this is just a, maybe uh, 150 miles, something like that. Uh, but again, when you're on a sailing ship and you're at the mercy of the, of the, the sea and the waves and all that stuff, 
I'm sure there's days when they, they might have went a mile ahead and two miles sideways and a mile back, you know. And so, but that's where Malta is, is right below Sicily. Um, so they're shipwrecked. Any thoughts, questions on that? Oh, it says they want to kill them. The reason the soldiers thought to kill the prisoners was that the soldiers were responsible for any prisoners. And if any prisoners got away, uh, the soldiers themselves could be killed, brought up on charges, thrown in jail, and or killed. So their thought was rather than lose anyone, because here the, the ship's tearing apart, uh, and, and they're figuring these guys are going to get away, we don't know how, you know, but is is you know have it they they all made it ashore together and uh, none of them were killed but that was the uh, that was the plan so the centurion you know a lot of times you know Paul's been helped out several times by a centurion you know centurions you know they're not necessarily God fearing men at this point you know it's even in uh, in Mark's gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross, there's a centurion there, and he points to Christ, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. And then you think, wow, why would a centurion say that? Well, Mark, who's writing for a, a, a the Gentile audience, a Roman audience, he's making the point here that the centurion who owes his allegiance to Rome says that truly this is the Son of God because one of the names of Caesar was Son of God. So the Roman centurion says, no, this is Son of God. So, you know, that's a kind of a profound statement. That's, that's, that's why that's in there. So, uh, any thoughts there before we go into, into this? So We're just, no pun intended, we're just sailing right along. <laughs> <laughs> This is the humor, folks. <laughs> so Acts chapter 28, verse 2-6. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, remember what I say about primitive people? When they don't understand something, they turn it into a god. And so here, uh, the viper comes out. A couple things about a viper. Uh, in cold weather, a viper is relatively stiff. It doesn't move around. But where it, where there's warmth, it will move, and it will 
do its thing. So they start this fire, and they probably started this fire in close proximity to this viper who's now warmed up, and now the viper comes out of nowhere and wraps itself around, around Paul's arm. And they know that when a viper does this, it's going to bite down, and the next thing that's happened is, is the poison is going to go into you, you're going to swell up, you're going to go into convulsions, you're going to die. And so their superstition was that because this happened, he must have been a murderer, and this is justice. And so then when it doesn't happen, he goes from a murderer to being a god. Just like that. So again, realize that, that this isn't that far from Sicily and Italy. And, you know, there's a lot of this kind of stuff out there. Here's Rome up here, by the way. Um, there's a lot of this stuff going on. So that even up in here, when the gospel's being preached and stuff, you're dealing with people that think like that. Or you're dealing with people that are educated by Rome and that the Caesar's a god and that philosophy's the main way and all this other stuff. And so, you know, that's the climate that Christianity uh, comes into. And uh, But I just thought it was interesting. You know, in one, one, one thing there, he goes from a murderer to being a god. And again, it's super, superstition. That's what superstitious people do. Okay, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named uh, Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us uh, courteously three days. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. So, why do you think this happened? Why do you think God allowed these healings to happen? I mean, these are pagan people. They don't know. It doesn't say that they've preached the gospel. It doesn't say they know anything about that. But why do you think these supernatural things are going on? For the people to believe uh, in God and Christ. It's the same way Jesus started his ministry. He started it with signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. And then he went into teaching. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the whole point is to get your attention and what better way to get people's attention than with miraculous healings and signs and wonders. And uh, uh, so that got their attention. And what I found interesting here is that the leading guy of, of the land there, his name, is, his name is, is Publius. That's a Greek name. But yet, you know, it says that these people were natives so what it sounds to me like is that, uh, I didn't research this, but it sounds to me like the Greeks came over and they kind of inhibited this little land here and now they kind of conquered or whatever the, the uh, natives there and they were now leading the, uh, the tribes there in, in Malta. You know? But it sounds like the natives there were 
relatively peaceful because when these guys come on the shore, they don't come out trying to kill them or, or anything. They're welcoming welcoming them. But I just thought it was interesting that the leader of the thing, he has a, uh, a Greek name. So, thoughts, questions? Good? Okay. Verse 10. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered on the island, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put it in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. In other words, there was another ship there, an Alexandrian ship, a ship that was from uh, uh, Africa. Alexandria was in the northern part of Africa. It was there. It, it basically had spent the winter there. So now they boarding that ship. It was a large, a larger ship, and they were now able to go. It says, and after we put in Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we sailed around and arrived at Rigidium, and a day later. The south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petulioli. <laughs> there we found some brethren who were invited, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. So he finds some believers there, brethren. He found some believers there. He stayed with them, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they had heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So they left Crete in October, November. Uh, they were in the storm for about two weeks. They stayed three months in Malta, yada, yada, yada. So now it's probably February, March, by the time they actually get to Rome. So it's it's just beginning to be um, springtime over there. And so he's under house arrest. And since I have time, I got through this a little quicker. I was going to save this last part for next week and do some stuff. But I'm going to finish the chapter right here. And in next week, what I'll do... Is uh, it's not up, but I'll do the uh, I'll do an overview of um, these books that Paul writes while he's while he's in Rome. I'll give you an overview of those. So that's what we'll do. Uh, no, not next week. Next week we won't be here. Next week. Next week we're going to break for uh, Thanksgiving. So it's the first Wednesday in December. So when we'll come back. First Wednesday in December, and I'll go through those books. But let's just go ahead and finish this, because it won't take long. So verse 17. And it happened that after three days he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I have done nothing against your people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Again, he can appeal to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. That's how he gets to Rome. 
Not that I had any accusation against my nation. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. Again, Christianity was looked upon as a sect of Judaism, kind of an offshoot of, 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 of Judaism. So we desire to hear from you what your views are concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So again, Christianity is being spoken against everywhere. Christianity is coming in with, with something new. Monotheism, one God, one creator, one Lord, one salvation. Uh, um, verse 23. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at this lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them solemnly, testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. So what is he doing? From morning to night, he's preaching the gospel to them. He's the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. And how is he preaching it? From the scriptures. So a lot of times people will say, you can only preach the gospel out of the New Testament. Well, the New Testament wasn't written. He's preaching it from the Old Testament, which points to Messiah, which speaks to Messiah, uh, which which is directly focused towards Messiah. So verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Now notice in your Bibles how it's written differently. It's not narrative anymore. Now it's almost in poetic form. He's quoting from uh, Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. Now it's interesting, he uses Isaiah, because again, what is he preaching from? So he's saying to these people, even the ones that don't believe, and says, I'm telling you about what Scripture says about Messiah, but I'm also telling you what Scripture says about you. This is who you are. And again, you know, Romans were very complacent because they they ruled everything. This is the Roman Empire. You know, they thought they were all that and a bag of chips. And uh, this is where I get a lot of times, if, if you hear, especially on Sundays, or I even do it in here, I always pray that your that you your eyes would be open, your ears would be open, and your heart would be open to receive. It comes from here, verse twenty-seven. From the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, 
and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. There's another place in Scripture where it says that. But that's that's the reference that uh, when, I, when I pray that, that's what I use. You know, God wants us to open our eyes to see what he's showing us, hear what he's saying, and then receive what he's saying in our, in our heart that we become passionate about it. And then here's the closing part of, of Acts, which is the closing part of the first uh, 35 years of uh, the New Testament. It says, And let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, that they will also listen. Romans were Gentiles. Romans just means others, those that were not Jewish, others. Uh, verse 29, And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Again, you know, whenever you you go against someone's belief system, it's going to be a little bit of, of a struggle there because they've believed for all their lives one thing or they believe their teachers and if their teachers aren't teaching them what God is saying, they're going to believe what the teachers say and not what God is saying and they're going to miss it. That's That's the problem. And that's, and that's a big problem in Christianity today and in fringe movements in Christianity because sometimes the Bible's not being preached the way it's written. You know, it's, 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 it's being misinterpreted and misused for other, other reasons. And so you, you miss the intent of, of Scripture. Uh, let's see, verse 30. And it says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. Now, the house that he was under house arrest was, it was a house, it was rented quarters, and there was a centurion out there guarding him, and his friends could come and go. He wasn't being bound in a dungeon somewhere. Okay, uh, Verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So he was able to preach the gospel. We don't know his outcome. The uh, um, tradition has it that he was martyred by Nero. And some would say that he was uh, crucified upside down. And we don't know. Nero did do that to Christians. uh, But we don't know for sure. Uh, that it happened that way. Then there's some that say that he was released for a little while and then they took him back into custody and then that's when they killed him. Um, Don't really have any supporting document on that. So what happens is now he's... We talked about journey to Rome, that's the shipwreck. Then he's in house arrest and we say he's there there for two years. Uh, this says five to seven years, but it's basically about two years. And so during that time, he's writing Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, First Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy. So these are known as the prison epistles. And so when you hear that, you think, you know, he's, you know, he's being, you know, he's under compulsion and he's, you know, sneaking letters out. No, he was free to, to write and send these things out. So, uh, in December, I'll, I'll go through there. If it, if it takes more than a week or two, I just can kind of do an overview of them because next year sometime we'll probably go into them more 
Uh, but I want to do uh, do that and then maybe a couple topics in uh, in December before we come back and then the first week in um, January, the first Wednesday in January, we'll start Romans. We'll go line by line through Romans. So that in a nutshell is a history, the first 35 years or so of the church. Because here we're talking, this is circa 60 to 67, but here, you know, this Starts in 34, Christ goes on the cross in 32, 33, and here we are over here. So, you know, we're talking roughly 35 years. So, all these things and all the epistles are written during, and the gospels are written during the first 35 years of the, uh, of the history of the church. And so, what's happened is the church has gone from one small group of people here, and now it's gone up uh, here. But remember, the second church main body was in Antioch, multicultural church there. And so now it goes up this way. But at the same time, uh, after this, especially about 40, 50 years after um, Acts ends, uh, Christianity goes down here, and Alexandria becomes a, a major place of, of, of learning for the church. Uh, Alexandria becomes that. And, um, but anyway, so they've gone up into this area here in uh, Asia Minor, which is Turkey and Greece, and uh, you hit the bottom part down in here of, uh, of, uh, 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 of Italy. And so that's basically in 35 years, which is pretty good. Again, we don't know how many believers. We can't, we, we can't number it by churches because, again, the Roman Empire, you couldn't, you couldn't own property. So they didn't have church buildings. They didn't have the first church, first Baptist church of uh, Lycia. You know, they, you didn't have any of that, you know. And so um, they were just home churches. And uh, denominations don't start until after the 1500s. That's that's a whole nother, a whole nother deal. But uh, uh, and by the way, the word Catholic, the word Catholic, not in Roman Catholic, but just the word Catholic, means universal. So the word Catholic was used in, by the early church in, in a few documents to describe the church. But it was with a small c, meaning that the church is universal. It's for everyone, you know. But then Rome later on took on that uh, Catholic and put a capital C on it and began to make it a, a denomination, a Roman Roman Catholic. Actually, they called Catholic. It doesn't become Roman Catholic until 1545 after the Reformation. That's when it becomes Roman Catholic Church. And then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, or there's known as the Greek Orthodox. They're all from this area here. And they split uh, from the Roman Church in about the year 900. They're arguing uh, over uh, a few different things. So this church over here says, you know what, we're out of here. We don't have to follow you anymore. Rome didn't have the power that it used to have. It couldn't force them so this is where Greek Orthodox developed. 
in here. And then Rome and all that took, uh, went off into Europe. So Eastern Orthodox. So that's where you, you get the idea of the East and West Church. It's right here. East and West. That's where that comes from. So, uh, but thoughts, questions? Yeah. Paul's going through a lot here. Sinking ships and prisons and all this. <laughs> how old is he or how... What's or what's his age group, or what's he doing in some of this? Good question. I don't have a, a firm answer for you. I'd have to look it up. But my best guesstimate is he's about fifty, right about now. And that's old for that time. Yeah, that's old for that's old for that time. But you could live, and some did uh, longer because you know if you lived a good you know hearty lifestyle, whatever. Uh, but yeah, he went through a lot, and the other side of it is during that time, again, a good 25% or to 30% of the population was sick all the time, dysentery and all that stuff, because they didn't have modern medicine, they didn't have that stuff, so if you got something, you got a cold or you got the flu, it could be, you know, or you got, uh, uh, you ate something bad, you had food poisoning, that wasn't really anything they could give you to counter that, and if your body couldn't handle it, you know, you know that, that's what happened. So that's part of why the healings, and, and why the healings were so important, because the people needed to be healed, and so when Jesus came healing them under the banner of only God can heal, you know, again, you know, to, to your point, is so that they could hear the gospel that, that, that could be preached uh, in signs and wonders. And so... Uh, yeah, the only one that lives a, that lives to be an old man is John. And John's up in his 90s when he finally dies. And uh, uh, you say something? It says that they believe he was born somewhere around 4 BCE. 4 B? 4 BCE. 4 BCE. So that would make him in his 60s. Mm -hmm. would make him in his 60s. 60s. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Four, 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 four. So when this is happening, it's 50s. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, here it is his late 50s. Yeah. yeah, his late 50s, yeah. Late 50s, yeah. Yeah, all the other, all the other apostles were, were martyred right around this time because historically, under Nero, Rome is just doing a lot of violent things, they're throwing Christianity, they're throwing Christians to the lions, and stuff, but they're also coming and persecuting and, and killing them uh, in these other regions and stuff. And so, all of the all of the uh, uh, apostles were at some point martyred. All of them. Yes. I have a silly question about uh, the healing. Uh, I heard a long time ago that the how you could tell that a person that was praying for somebody else to get healed was they had to lay hands on them. And my question is, did Jesus ever heal someone without laying his hands on them? Yeah, he, he called Lazarus out of the tomb. That's right. Just called him out. That's right. And, but the laying on of hands was, in the Old Testament, it's the way you, 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 you passed on a blessing to someone. You would put your hand on them. And, uh, yeah, there it is, right there, you got it. And, and, and so that was what a father would do to the children, to the yes. family. 
Yes. Uh, that's they would even there's even in the time of the patriarchs. I think it's I think it's when Isaac is dying. Uh, you know he he you know his sons come to he, come to him, and and it's like put your put your hand under my leg, and I put my hand on you, and he, he passes the blessing, which then later becomes in the form of of uh, whatever you bless someone. Yes. You put the, you put your hands on them, then later it became the sword, kind of thing. And uh, but then also the uh, the anointing, the being set aside, they would pray, they would put hands on you, but then they would pour the oil on you. Mm-hmm. But to your question, yeah, laying on of hands was Old Testament, and it started with the idea of passing a blessing on to someone. So if you were going to bless them, I give you my land, I give mm-hmm. you my hair. Put your hand on them. Mm-hmm. That was that was as good as forty pages of documents, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all that stuff. So, and uh, so. even in the Hispanic countries, I don't know now, but mm-hmm. it was a custom that as the kids would go out of the house to to school, the parents stand at the door, and the father puts the his hand on each one mm-hmm. and blesses each one. And that, so yeah. another follow up question is, if a parent does not bless the child is that the same as cursing the child if we if the parent withholds putting on that depends on the person's theology if the theology is the only way that that child can be blessed is if I put my hand on him then then that means yeah you're you're sending them out of out of, out of the house with a curse on them but there, there isn't a biblical reference to that. Mm-hmm. Although, is it a good thing to pray over your children and people when they leave? Sure. Yes. And yeah. Because I remember in Cuba, all my friends, whether they were Christian or not, that was a custom. But we never got that, so we always left the house feeling like we were being cheated, really. Yeah. Now that's that's just a, that's kind of a, a personal theology of a group. It's just like. A, in the Catholic Church, is a lot of times what parents would do, especially mothers or something, when the children are leaving, they they, yes. they do the sign of the cross as they're yes. leaving. Yes. You know, that's that's the custom. Uh-huh. So it's not biblical; mm-hmm. it's custom. Mary has a her mom used to do that, oh. <laughs> and and uh, I saw it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those are more customs, mm-hmm. you know, but they're they're not biblically. Mandated, although we're called to speak good things over our mm-hmm. our family and our, and our children, blessing that way. And and again, it's like it's like the, it's like the benediction that I do when I when I read it in Hebrew uh, from Numbers six. You know, it says uh, number six. Verse 22, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Aaron was the first of the priests. The sons means those that were in the priestly line. He says, Speak to them and say, Thus you shall bless the sons, meaning the children of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you, keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you, the Lord lift his countenance on you, give you peace. But then it says, 
so they shall invoke my name on the on the sons of Israel, meaning children of Israel, and then I will bless them. So he says to those priests, you say it to them, but the blessing is coming from God. And so when it comes from is not necessarily I'm blessing you, but God is blessing you. So that's why I use that a lot of times as the thing. One time I did that I a, 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 one years ago. I'll, I'll end with this. Um, I had planted a church and we had about a hundred and some people in there. And I read this and all of a sudden I realized what it was saying. I literally had a service where I had each and every person come up and I spoke this over them and laid hands on them. Because it was, okay, that's my job to speak it to every one of them. Not that I'm giving them any something, but God will bless them and understand where that's coming from. So that's why I always use an invocation to end the, end the service. So, question. Anything else? The, the word in Spanish, adios. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, I heard that that's the shortest prayer uh, of blessing, adios, because a long, long time ago, you know, it's the parents who blessed the kids, and then it became um, like. When they were blessed, and they would say, "I um, may you be in the hands of, of God to guide you and everything." And then it became "Adios," mm-hmm. two words in the hands of God, and then one word "Adios." But mm-hmm. that's what it supposed yeah. to I like it. <laughs> well, I, I have one shorter than that that I used to say over Adrian <laughs> when, when 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 Diego came over to take her out. I said. <laughs> he knew what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that is a beautiful way of, of doing yeah, that. But, so. but see, that's culture. Yeah. See, God doesn't take culture out of people. He uses people's culture mm-hmm. as long as that culture doesn't move away from God. Yes. So, yes. You know, culture is a good thing. That's why I like multicultural churches yeah, yeah. because you 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 bring all that into the mix. As long as you're you know, on the Word of God. So, we good? Remember, next week, you're preparing for Thanksgiving. We will go dark here, and then we'll reconvene, well, actually on Sunday, but then on um, the first Wednesday in December, we will be back in here. And the Advent season is going to start this Sunday. Uh, when we do the Advent, love, hope, and all that, that's going to start this Sunday. So, let me just close in prayer. Uh, since I'm here, let me use it. Uh, <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. May the blessings of Almighty God fill your heart. May he watch over you this week, uh, take care of you. Uh, may you be safe. May his healing be present for you and his strength and whatever that you need. And go in peace. And God bless you. And Amen. Amen. Thank you.